feels very hard to pierce the, the silence and the stillness of a perfect summer evening in the mountains. <clears throat> had some words as walking down the, the road, channeling Miss Oliver, and the words were, have you ever seen anything more beautiful than the way the evening sun slanting lights up the meadow and the trees and the rocky crags and the deer who prance through the tall grasses. Have you ever seen anything more beautiful than that? There it is, right there. Am I talking loud enough? If you you can't hear me, you're gonna have to sit closer. So one evening, or one time when the Buddha was uh, sitting in front of his assembled monks and nuns and lay folks, he sat in silence, as I think he often did, and I can only imagine the deep silence that pervaded that, that experience of those you know, awakened ones sitting together. And instead of giving a discourse, he was known for his lengthy and eloquent discourses. He just did this. He held up a flower. So the Buddha had psychic powers and was able to, one of the reasons he was such a great teacher was he could really track what was going on with people and was able to give a very attuned teaching, which is why so many people woke up in his presence in dialogue because of that skill. So... uh, there was a monk sitting at the back, Mahakashapa, who was a senior uh, disciple of the Buddha. And so the Buddha raises the flower, and Mahakashapa smiles like a knowing smile. And they say that was the foundation of the uh, Zen lineage. mind-to-mind transmission lineage. Did you get it? (laughs) I'll do it one more time, quick. (laughs) But I, I, in that moment that I plucked the flower, sorry flower, like, I, it, it's so clear why he did that. Right? Like, this is it. 
like Lao Tzu was pointing to this morning. This is it. No other place will be better. No one else has the answer. It has already turned out. It's all right here. This, 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 this is it. It's not anywhere else. Whatever it is that you're seeking is not anywhere else. Freedom is not anywhere else. Wisdom, awakening is not anywhere else but right here. So when we come outside, there's a suchness, an isness, a perfection, a timelessness, a undescribableness to it. And we can feel it, we can sense it, we can point to it, we can intuit it. At times we know it, at times we know it deeply in our bones. We might not be able to say what it was we knew or touched or felt or tasted or experienced, but there's some knowing. So without going to the graveyard of the past in your mind and memory, is there anything that's missing right now? Is there anything that's lacking in your immediate experience? So we can taste a fullness, a completeness, a wholeness the innate perfection of things. When we're quiet, when we're open, when we're tuned, nature is singing the innate perfection of experience of life. Perfect just as it is. This dead ponderosa tree behind me, which I've been looking at for 26 years, waiting for it to fall, but it hasn't miraculously, in the storms and the lightning and the rain. Look at it. It's beautiful in its dead, decaying perfection. Could it be improved upon? Is it lacking anything? It's, it's, you know, it's the Buddha right there teaching loud and clear, broadcasting. So nature reveals the Dhamma, the truth, the way things are, the natural order of things. That line from Kabir that I've mentioned, when the eyes and the ears are awake, even the leaves on the trees, read like pages from the scriptures. Even the grasses in the meadow and the flowers by the river and the dead and decaying trees and the cumulus clouds. 
I like reading pages from the scriptures, from the holy books. So what we're doing here is we are attuning our senses, awareness to the Dhamma, to the truth of things, to the way things are, to the natural law of things. You may not know that that's what you're doing, (laughs) but that's kind of what's happening as you slow down, as you become more sensitive, attuned. You don't have to know anything about what the Dharma is. I'm going to say a few things about what the Dharma is. But I can imagine that each one of you senses in your being something. Some attunement, some reverence, some openness, some connection, some awe, some wonder, some silence, some stillness, something ineffable, something beyond words. These teachings are a bunch of words pointing to that which is beyond words, which we taste through a direct experience. When we sit quietly and just sense the poignancy of this moment, we're sensing that which is beyond words. When we look at an aspen tree in its stillness and its beautiful form, both empty and full and complete just as it is. There's a sense of rightness or wholeness or fullness. We're not needing to improve upon or change or fix or control or manipulate or do all the kinds of stuff that we do, all the thingies that we do. And we come to a place of deep rest, a deep stillness, a deep knowing that this is it. When I studied with this amazing Advaita teacher in Lucknow in northern, northern India, this man called Punjaji, uh, one of his teachings was, this is it. What are you all looking for? Why are you coming all the way from America and Europe and Australia? It's right here. This is it. What are you not seeing? And I, and I related that teaching in two different ways. This is it. So he was living in this very polluted North Indian industrial city. And um, I was like, this is it? Really? <laughs> like awakening, enlightenment, freedom? Really? Like the dusty Indian city? Like, Really? I was expecting shiny lights and celestial music and, you know. <laughs> and then other times, I'm sitting on a rickshaw in gridlock traffic, and the air is literally hazy blue with pollution and exhaust from the tuk-tuks. And it's chaotic and loud and polluted. And I'm, and I'm thinking, this is it. This is it, right here in the middle of the most polluted city in India, as far as I could remember. This is it. It's nowhere else. What I'm looking for, what I'm seeking is right here. 
right in the very seat that you're sitting in. And so for me, nature transmits that all the time. This is it. It's right here. What else are you seeking? Where else do you think happiness and freedom lies but right here? So this teaching is pointing to that, right? That can't be put into words. When I was in high school, I had a dear friend who we raised Catholic and he was a very devout Catholic and I was, uh, I got into Buddhism early and we would meet up uh, when we we're at college and have these Buddhist Catholic debates <laughs> that kind of went nowhere because he believed in God and I be- didn't believe in God. And we took a hike one day and I said, show me like, what is this God that you keep praying to? And he said, look at this, look at this. Look at this. Of course, in my Buddhist righteous mind, I said, that's not proof. (laughs) But actually, he was giving me a transmission. Like the sacred, the mystery, the divine is right here. Right here. Right here. Right here. In the third Zen Patriarch, he said, those who do not think, those who do not think it is near, seek it afar. What a pity. Oh, the Chinese poet Han Shan said, if you look for the truth outside of yourself, it gets further and further away. Here, walking alone, I meet him everywhere I step. She is the same as me, yet I am not her. Only if you understand it in this way will you merge with the way things are. If you look for the truth outside of this moment, it gets further and further away. One of the problems with the, the, the notion of a path and walking a path, and when I started my Buddhist journey when I was 19, I felt like I was on a really long path. Eons and eons and lifetimes and lifetimes seemed kind of arduous. And then I went to India and I encountered my first Vipassana teacher. And he was pointing to liberation and awakening possible 
right now, right here in this very body, in this very moment, where else could it happen? And it completely lit me up, completely transmitted something about the possibility of awakening right here. And I'm just, and I'm seem to be channeling different texts. This very moment, the lotus paradise. This very body, the Buddha. I don't know what text that comes from. Some great Buddhist Mahayana text. This very, this very uh, moment, the lotus paradise. It's like a Buddha realm, uh, perfection that Buddhists aspire to. This very body the Buddha. So another teaching, this is from Achan Man, great Thai forest meditation master. And he's using the word body, but if we think of body, not just as this body, but this body, he said, in your investigation of the world, never allow the mind to leave the body. Never allow the mind to leave the body. Examine its nature closely. See its transient, ephemeral, uncertain and empty nature while sitting, walking, standing or lying down. When the true nature of the body or experience is fully and and lucidly seen by the heart, the wonders of the world will become clear and the essence of the mind will shine forth timeless and delivered. In your investigation of the world, never allow the mind to leave the body. Never allow the mind to leave direct experience, immediacy of experience. And so in nature, we're immersing ourselves in the immediacy of experience. For what reason? Not just to have a good time. This isn't a nature holiday. It's not a nature vacation. I work very hard, like I teach a retreat in Baja. It's a kayaking retreat, camping on the beaches. I have to work really hard to remind people, this is not a vacation. You could do this on vacation, have a great time. Go ahead. I'm not that interested. I want to use this form so you wake up. You wake up to the truth of your own nature. You wake up the truth of reality, which is singing loudly from the trees and the bird nest and the flower gardens. So turning our minds towards the Dhamma as we're outside, this Dhamma is, the teachings are singing from the trees. Sometimes it requires we attune in a certain way to know that. So the most obvious wisdom teaching that we access, notice, is 
the changing nature of experience. We build buildings to try and prevent change. Anybody a homeowner here? How hard you have to work to try and prevent change? <laughs> Plastering and painting and fixing and dry rot and... Right? Hopeless lost cause. <laughs> it's a one-way decaying street. <laughs> Just like our bodies. When we come outside, we see that so evident. Look around right now. Look around. See the nature of change. We're in the fullness of summer, but we can also see springs decay. We can see flowers and plants emerging. We can see the new growth on the, the pines. No two moments the same. Heraclitus, you never step in the same river twice. When you sit by the river, we think, oh, it's the river Vallecitos. No, it's just changing phenomena. Moving, shifting, passing. There's no such thing as river except a constellation of the water element that's moving. No two molecules, particles ever the same. If you go back to the river tomorrow, it's not the same river. So we can attend to the transient, ephemeral nature of experience. Has anything stuck around today? Is anything in your experience permanent while sitting and walking and hiking outside today? The light, the colors, the sounds, the shapes, the forms, the birds, the people, the animals, the, the temperature, right? just this flow of phenomena, flow of experience, inwardly, outwardly. Right? We are nature and we're as ephemeral and as transient and as insubstantial as anything around us. And this is the, one of the key insights the Buddha's pointing to. In his last dying words, he could have said anything like, hey, it's been a good life. But he said, all conditioned things are impermanent. With mindfulness, work out your salvation with diligence. With mindfulness, strive on. All conditioned things are impermanent. Nothing lasts, nothing sticks around. What does that mean? Nothing's t- dependable, nothing's certain, nothing's reliable. And what does that mean? It points to the futility of holding on, the futility of control, the futility of grasping after fleeting pleasure because it's going to disappear. Right? We know this, we know things change intellectually, experientially. We like seeing pretty thing. We grab it because we want to keep it. We want to take it home with us. We're going to press it. You know, this student who um, went to the Kala Chakra uh, teachings that that His Holiness was giving years ago in uh, England. And beautiful 10-day ceremony. Um, And, you know, one of the teachings is around impermanence. And at the end of the ceremony, they do a beautiful ritual. 
and then they dismantle the, the altar and the sand mandalas. And um, she goes up to the altar at the end and she takes some of the, the roses as a memento. She takes them back to her shrine back in Wales. And um, she has them on the altar as a way of remembering the teaching. And, uh, and of course, roses, they get old, they decay, they go brown, but she didn't want to get rid of them because they had a sacred sort of, you know, association. So she kept them as leaving, they were, they, were, they were decaying and her husband wanted to get rid of them because they were kind of rotting. And <laughs> anyhow, she comes back one day from work and the cleaners vacuumed the house and including those crappy old dead flowers on the altar. Like, what's the problem? <laughs> Clean up after. Anyhow. So she gets back and she's distraught that her these sacred mementos. So when her husband gets back, she asks him to go through the vacuum cleaner bag and pull out the roses. <laughs> that are a reminder of the teachings of impermanence and unreliability and uncertainty and undependability. <laughs> and halfway through the dust and the crap, you know, she's like, oh, okay. Okay, I get it. I get it. <laughs> That's the teaching. <laughs> right, but we're like that, you know? We, we get attached to things. Who doesn't get attached to, you know, like, I know this is a new shirt. I know the first day I wear a new shirt, like, there's already stains on it. It's just like, oh, why am I surprised? I know it's going to happen sooner or later. <laughs> I just bought myself a new car. I'm paranoid about scratching it. It's going to scratch. It's already broken. It's already on the scrap heap. <laughs> well, I hope it's not quite there yet, but rather attached to it. <laughs> right? So as we, you know, as we sit and become permeable, sensitive, attuned, right, we, we, we just see experience, this waterfall of experience, inside, outside, ephemeral, changing, shifting, this flow. And that's deeply sobering and poignant and, and, and slowly uh, permeates a thick skull. <laughs> And slowly we, we feel it in our, we get it in our bones. Our things change. Things past this beautiful meadow will become brown mulch in a few months. Become flattened with snow. And we'll come back in spring and it's brown and gray and dreary. That's the nature of things. Rise, flourish, bloom, decay, perish and become soil, manure, fertilizer for new life. We know that, but to feel it in your bones. So the next couple of days, hang out with something that's changing, the fluttering leaves, the moving river, the light. Notice, notice what's arising flourishing, noticing what's decaying and dying. In the same way, we take birth, grow, flourish, decay and wither. 
And so we see there's no certainty, there's no dependability, because everything is changing. It's the nature of things. And we build buildings and we build all kinds of things to slow that down and to mitigate it. And that's totally appropriate to do, given we need to survive and be comfortable and healthy and all of that. But not believing that really it's going to last. And of course, a natural outflow of that reflection on impermanence is the reflection on death. Everything that arises passes away. Everything that comes into birth passes into cessation, including us, including our thoughts and our feelings and our peak experiences and our relationships and our achievements and our empires and our stories, everything arises, passes away into cessation. This ponderosa tree was a blooming, flowering, beautiful ponderosa. It still is. And then like everything, we'll die. Taking the hike, I think we've all gone on that hike now down to Icarus. That, I'm assuming it's an elk, I can't know for sure. But um, maybe a cow, but probably an elk, given where it's located. Pretty sure it's an elk. Wouldn't be on the ranch in the winter if it was a cow. Um, We're strolling and eating and feeding enjoying this beautiful land, and then something took it down, predator or sickness, and now it's boned, it's bleached white bones, reminding us about death, about impermanence, that we're all heading that way sooner or later. And we don't know who's next. The hubris of youth thinks it's not going to happen for a long time. Death doesn't care what, how old you are. Impermanence doesn't care how old you are. The earth doesn't care how old you are. The universe, that often banted around phrase, well, the universe wanted me to be here. Well, the universe doesn't care whether you live or die, frankly. So to to incline the attention towards the beauty and towards the decay and the demise, this too shall pass, this too shall pass, this too shall pass. This retreat will pass. This beautiful day will pass. Right? Sometimes that's comforting when you're having a really hard, difficult time in your life. This too will pass, because it will. It might get worse, but it will pass. It will become something else. But eventually it will become some, you know, move on. 
but we don't like it as much when it's something beautiful and delicious and blissful and that too will pass. A great poem by Mary Oliver, I'll see if I can remember it. I haven't recited it for a long time. She says, when death comes like the hungry bear in autumn, when death comes like the measles, the measle pox, when death comes like a sharp blade between, sharp, sharp knife between the shoulder blades, when death comes with his bright coins to buy me and snaps the purse shut, I want to, I want to, I want to enter into, into that cottage of darkness and wandering. No, I want to enter. I want to enter full of curiosity, wondering what will it be like that cottage of darkness. And therefore, I look upon everything as a brotherhood, as an, and a sisterhood. I consider time as no more than an idea and consider eternity as another possibility. I see each body as a line of courage, something unique and precious to this earth. I think of each name as a comfortable music in the mouth, tending as all music does towards silence. When it's all over, I want to say, all my life I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. When it's all over, I don't want to find myself sighing and frightened. I don't want to find myself simply having visited this world. When it's all over, I want to say, I was a bride married to amazement. I was living with wonder, with curiosity, making the most of this one wild and precious life, as she says. I want to be like the bridegroom, taking the world into my arms, welcoming, opening, and allowing, like we do in Qigong, welcoming, opening. So some people think Buddhists are just morbid and depressing because they th- all they talk about is suffering and death. <laughs> but they talk about that not to be morbid, but to wake us up. Because we go to sleep. We think we're not going to die. We think experience is going to last forever. And if I just chase it, grab it, control it, I'll be happy. Well, how's that working out for you? I remember when I was leading these kayaking retreats up in Alaska, I think I mentioned it the other night, and we were on the Inside Passage kayaking, camping on these islands, and it's in July, it's the height of the, one of the salmon runs, and um, my friend who lives up there, who was co-guiding, he said there's 55 million salmon coming back from their three-year migration you know, with just tremendous life force 
surging up the channels, estuaries, rivers, streams, creeks. And it's incredibly poignant to see the whole sea just jumping with life. But they're also, and they're marching to their death. Right? They're marching to procreate, to sustain new life, mate and die. And you know there's this huge movement of life and death. It's incredibly profound. And I'm sure some of you have been up there and seen it. This is the cycle, and, and that their, their, their life cycle so beautifully uh, emulates or expresses that this movement of life, spawning, growth, migration, procreation, decay, and death. And then, of course, giving in tremendous richness of food source to the whole ecosystem, from the crabs to the black and brown bear coming down from the mountains to the bald eagle hatchlings who are feeding on the the salmon and this whole web of life beautifully intact or relatively intact and flowering from this cycle of life and death. And so pay attention, turn your attention, incline your mind towards not just the beauty and the rising, but also the passing and the decaying and the dying. <coughs> One of the reasons I love to lead these retreats down in Baja is the, the, the rocky beaches are covered. It's like a graveyard to marine life. Crabs, crab shells, fish bones, seabird skeletons, starfish, just this massive bleaching white bones. So notice what arises when I talk about this theme. Notice what happens when you turn your attention to this nature of reality. Changing nature, the inevitability of death, the uncertainty of of the timing of that. And can we hold that with a compassionate attention? Because for many it's very terrifying. To know there's no solid ground, nothing dependable in the external phenomenal world. That's why we take refuge. We take refuge in awareness. We take refuge in that which knows. We take refuge in the way things are because to not take refuge means to be in opposition or contention, which means to struggle and to suffer unnecessarily. And we take refuge in the Sangha because we're around like-minded people who are not trying to spend their lives denying this reality.
My teacher Punjaji used to say, the desire for the transient is the thief of peace. The desire for the transient is the thief of peace. And then one of the ironies about coming outside and really immersing in a landscape is and, and seeing the, the changing nature of all experience, all moments. Change implies time, past, present, future. But also when we come outdoors, we can uh, enter into deep time or timelessness. And sometimes our, our experience Our time out here feels timeless, or we sense into something timeless, even in the changing, you know, like the fluttering of the aspens when when there's millions of fluttering leaves going, you know, incredibly fast. Sometimes in that movement, we can sense stillness. In that shifting time, we can sense the timelessness. Or this time of night at dusk or at dawn. And when there's stillness, maybe we're sitting with these ancient crags, rocks, mountains. We step out of clock time, linear time, minutes and hours and days. And we sense into something much deeper. I like leading retreats in the southwest, particularly in the canyons, near the Grand Canyon and other other places, down the green. I've done lots of rafting retreats where we're going down canyons that are hundreds of million years old. Does something to our sense of time scarcity, (laughs) our sense of lack of time. Going down these 290 million year old cliffs down the Green River or somewhere. Time is infinite. And we can sense into that and it can very much expand our sense of time scarcity and limitation, rushing. So another of the central teachings of the Buddha was his teachings on causality, on conditionality. How everything arises and passes according to conditions. And it can be somewhat abstract, but we can also feel it very experientially. And again, I think when we come outside, just as understanding that causal web of life in the cycle I was just describing with the salmon run, We can see that here, the 
interdependent, interconnected web of life and how we are part of that web. And pointing, orienting to the, the relationship between the inner and the outer. The Buddha's analysis of a misconception of self was that we misperceive our nature. We think it's independent, separate, self-existing, and permanent. Good luck with that. Is there anything that's independent in this world? Independence and individualism is a very highly prized value here. Independence is a complete myth. It should be called Interdependence Day. Right? What are we independent from? I mean, give me a break. I mean, okay, independent from the British. I can understand that's not a bad thing, right? But um, really, nothing is independent in this entire universe. Nothing. It's this incredible web of mutuality. Subtle, complex matrix of conditions that give rise to, you know, 14 billion years of evolution, and we get this. Everything in the universe is inextricably related to this flower and the hair on your head. And the vegetables we had for salad. So hopefully, uh, again, as we slow down, become more open, attuned, sensitive, we feel this interconnection. We feel a little less separate. Maybe you feel at times, maybe I'm not just walking through the forest or looking at the forest, but maybe I'm actually in the forest or maybe actually I'm part of the forest in this moment. When the deer walk through this meadow, I don't, know if, well, I don't know what they're thinking, but they're perceiving that we are part of this landscape. Slightly weird, <laughs> slightly colorful, slightly unnatural, but part of this landscape. We somehow don't perceive ourselves as that. We perceive ourselves as separate from, in the same way when we drink the water and we pee it out, we sort of feel separate from it rather than realizing that we are becoming Vyasito's spring water. It's not just a nice new age concept, it's actually real. <laughs> We're eating the earth and becoming earth. It's real. But our, our Uh, We have this optical delusion of consciousness that sees everything as separate and can't can't really perceive that the apple becomes my flesh or my blood sugar. 
So there's a lovely poem from David Wagoner that speaks to this mutuality. And I really invite you again the next two days as you're walking this land, sitting, lying, whatever you're doing in the woods, that you tune into this dynamic of relationship. We're always in relationship. And often we think it's a one-way thing. I come to a tree, I look at the tree and not be aware that the tree is aware of us, that the deer is aware of us, that the flowers are aware of us, that the landscape here is aware of us. So in this poem called Lust, he says, stands, just imagine, and we're, we are sort of in the forest, but we're not quite tucked in the forest, but imagine there's, just bring the forest closer in for a second. And he says, stands, to, this is based on a couple of Native American uh, stories. And he says, stand still, the trees ahead and the bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here, here, here. You must treat it as a powerful stranger. You must ask permission to know it and be known. Listen, the forest whispers. I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back again saying here, here, here. No two trees are the same to raven. No two bushes are the same. No two limbs are the same to wren. If what a tree or a bush does is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. So how different is that than I'm going for a hike through the woods (laughs) to see the trees? (laughs) Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. That's a very different interrelationship and interbeing as Thich Nhat Hanh would call it. So especially when you're on your own, we're going to give you more solo time on Friday and some of you took solo time today. Go into the woods, be still, let the forest find you. Always in relationship, not necessarily cognizant of it. And so we see how we're deeply, intimately interconnected, deeply, intimately interwoven with the landscape, with the earth's surface, with each other, with life, teeming through us. And so that, that interdependence pokes a lot of holes in this central teaching around self, not self. That who we take ourselves to be, 
who we identify with, what story, what self-image, what self-construct, what identity, what personality, is just that. It's a construction of the mind. Who we think we are, who we take ourselves to be, is a construct in the mind that we've created over time, solidified, reflected back from others, The sense of self, also a really great uh, analysis or reflection to do on retreat, is to see how the sense of self is perennially changing, moving, shifting, expanding, contracting, appearing, disappearing, dissolving, returning, emptying, solidifying, contracting, positioning, dissolving, immersing, forgetting. Pay attention to that. When you go off for a walk on your own tomorrow, are you lying down by the river? Are you gazing at a flower or into a deer's eyes? In those moments, maybe many moments, maybe minutes, maybe hours, at times the sense of self, of me, in nature, looking at a flower, and how cool that is, and I can't wait to tell my friends when I get home, and I should take a photo of it and post it on Instagram. <laughs> All that stuff can dissolve, can get quiet, right? Especially the longer we go out, the more alone we are, and we, as long as we feel safe and, and relaxed. The sense of self, when we're not busy doing, thinking about ourselves, ruminating, and we're just letting ourselves be immersed in the natural world. A sense of self expands, dissolves, gets quiet, and there's just listening, there's just seeing, there's just relaxing, sensing, knowing. And so notice the sense of self is like an accordion. And so at times very relaxed, open. And then maybe you hear the bell and suddenly the sense of self slaps back. Oh no, I'm so far from the meditation hall. I'm going to be late. Oh no, I was late last time. They told us to be on time. Oh my God, I'm such a bad yogi. What am I teacher going to think? Oh my God. Oh, oh, oh. And then we look at our watch like, oh, it's dinner time. Oh, it's dinner time. Oh, it's just dinner time. I can get there late. It's okay. Mark always gets us late there anyway, every time, so what's the big deal? He has no idea what time it is. <laughs> so, so, so the sense of self relaxes. Oh, I, got, I can take my time. I can walk through the long grasses and pause at my favorite aspen. And you know, again, the sense of self oh, softens, relaxes, opens. And then, you know, something else happens. We get to the dining room. And we drop our bowl. It's like, oh God, like the mindfulness dread moment. <laughs> Everybody knows how unmindful we are. We spill everything and it's, oh God, I'm going to find out. I'm in the clutch of the retreat. They're going to kick me off. And, and the sense of self, you know, we feel it. It's contracted, tight, sticky, painful, small. And when we identify that as who we are, it's really miserable. If we believe that's who we are, that's misery right there. 
Okay? But if we have awareness, we, we see that the plate drops, a wave of self-consciousness arises, and we can smile like, oh, Mr. Mindfulness wins the day again. <laughs> Pick it up, you know, start over, you know, feel our blushing face. Oh, it's what the system does when it's self-conscious. It blushes. Oh, that's kind of cute. Oh. And a little loving kindness. Oh, honey, you're a little embarrassed. That's okay. Everybody drops their plates every now and then. <laughs> and in that, it's not a problem. We're not sticking to some identity of trying to be the best yogi, the perfect mindfulness walla. Right? We're just in the flow of experience. And our humanness, you know, shit happens. We take care, we correct, we love, we move on, we enjoy our dinner. And we don't, we don't carry it for the next three days. Oh, God, what were they thinking? They really... Right? To take birth in that identity of the one who's unmindful and is a klutz of a yogi, right? that's painful. And we take birth in that constricted belief and reality all day, every day, in all kinds of different ways. I'm a good partner. I'm a bad partner. I'm a good teacher. I'm a bad teacher. I'm whatever your story is. So see the play of self coming and going. Like that poem we heard yesterday, one of my favorite nature poems. The birds have vanished into the sky. The last remaining clouds have faded away. We sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. We sit together, the grasses and me, until only the grasses remain. We sit together, the, the river and me, until only the river remains. We sit together, the mosquitoes and me, until I get them. No, just <laughs> And then it's just me. <laughs> That's not where we're going with it. <laughs> Although I came across a really funny translation of that poem. It's like, it's a beautiful day. The birds are floating. The sun is shining. We gaze at each other, the mountain and me. Until, I forget how it goes, we gaze at each other, the mountain and me. I think that's it. (laughs) You know, and it's like, ooh. (laughs) Completely misses the meaning. Beware of any translations, right? Everything we've inherited from my wisdom teaching, they're mostly translated many times. And then we get into doctrinal warfares about words that have been translated three times. Anyhow, take it with a big rock of salt. Uh, but the point is to see the elusive ephemeral nature of everything, including ourself. Sense of self coming and going, rising, contracting, strong, dissolved. And just see how oh, that too is ephemeral. My teacher, one of, oh, I'm sorry for going on so long. I'm going to wrap up in a minute. Um, timeless. I'm just saying, you know, this talk is timeless. It's so bloody timeless that it's just gone and on and on. <laughs> I will, it will have an end, I promise. <laughs> um, I'm having way too much fun. Um, so, where was I? Oh, so, um, 
So last couple of comments. So I came back from Asia. I'd had these very profound openings and uh, awakenings with different teachers. But I came back to London and I was a social worker. I was working in a violent uh, rehab homeless center for substance abuse uh, folks. And um, it was very heavy. It was very intense. It was very violent. We ended up getting shut down because we couldn't contain the violence. I was very triggered. And that, all that spacious, you know, awakening, open, non-dual, la-la in India, suddenly just, you know, I'm the sense of self. Like, I'm terrified. I'm either going to get fired or killed working here. And um, anyhow, it was just very distressing to see the sense of self coagulate. And I went back on retreat with my teacher and I was telling him about the pain of that. And he said, freedom allows self and not self to be. Reality allows self and not self to be. Reality allows duality and non-duality to be. And so that, that is our experience. We, we move, you know, as Nisargadatta beautifully put it, Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Love tells me I'm everything. Between the two, my life flows. Okay? With, with, with understanding of emptiness, we see we're nothing. Just phenomena coming and going. Thoughts, feelings, sensations, perceptions, awareness coming and going. Love tells me I'm everything interconnected, interwoven with every living thing. Between the two, my life flows. That is our reality. Expanding, contracting, selfing and not selfing, solidifying and dissolving, everything and nothing, love and emptiness, right? We dance between these realms, and freedom, the ability to abide in the awareness and the knowing of the coming and going of this seeming world. And out of that knowing, what arises, what arises is love. What arises is intimacy. What arises is care. What arises is grief for what's happening to this beautiful world. What arises is compassion and activity to want to do something and engage. That's what arises out of this freedom, out of this wakefulness, out of this intimate connection with life. So I will close there. Thank you for your kind attention. Let's just sit quietly for a moment while we let those words settle. 